You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. CPR has long been known to be an effective measure to initiate cardiac resuscitation at the scene of a cardiac arrest. All physicians, healthcare providers, and many of the lay public are well versed in the procedures. Outcome for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests has not been good. For the first time in many years, the American Heart Association has made dramatic changes to the CPR protocol. Today, we're going to look at why and how these changes have taken place and how this may affect patients in your practice. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kathleen Schrank. Dr. Schrank is a professor of medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and chief of the Division of Emergency Medicine for the University. She's also the medical director for the City of Miami Fire Rescue. Today we are discussing the changes made by the American Heart Association in CPR and how it impacts your practice. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Schrank. Thanks for taking up this interesting topic because there have been a lot of great changes made. Now, the American Heart did not make significant changes to the CPR portion, which is basic life support, of the recommendations for cardiac arrest treatment for many years. Yet now the changes are significant, with the ratio of compressions to ventilations at 30 to 2 for the first time and warnings about overventilation. What is the science behind these changes? We've really learned a lot in the last many years from both the research laboratories as well as clinical care and clinical research. And in, finally, in December of 2005, the recommendations were published by the American Heart Association, but it's taken a while to get the courses changed and get the word out and get refresher training, et cetera, done so that people are aware of them. Some of the research is, is great with contrast echocardiography, being done during real cardiac arrests in people, there were great videos produced showing exactly how the blood flows through the heart with chest compressions. And you could see that the first compression did nothing. The second, it twitched a little bit. The third, you saw some flow from the right side to the left side of the heart. And it really took four compressions to get the flow going. With the fifth compression, blood flow was great. And then the old guidelines said, oh, give a breath. When you're doing two rescue or CPR, it was five compressions to one ventilation. Then you go right back to square one on perfusion. Nothing moves until the next fourth beat. Even with 15 to 2, the old guidelines for one person CPR, it just wasn't enough continuous blood flow. And from research from groups like Dr. Avey's group at University of Arizona, it was obvious that continuous, uninterrupted chest compressions were hugely important. Um, in good perfusion of the heart so that it could be resuscitated, and even more important, in good perfusion of the brain during CPR. So now we say push hard, push fast. What are the guidelines that the American Heart Association recommended? Several things uh, remain from prior guidelines for the public to shake and shout, for all of us really, to shake and shout when a person is unconscious and see if they're arousable. If not, open the airway, give two breaths. That's a little controversial still among the research group and many of us who think that may not be necessary. And even with the Heart Association, if the public is unwilling to give the mouth-to-mouth breaths, or we are, if we're on the scene of a cardiac arrest in public, skip them. Do the chest compression. That's tremendously helpful for people that were just afraid to start anything because they didn't want to do mouth-to-mouth. This is the first time we've ever heard to skip a ventilation. We really emphasized ventilation, ventilation, ventilation before, and we now know that's not nearly as important as we thought. It's interesting that when an adult collapses in cardiac arrest, it's usually from a sudden arrhythmia, 
And the oxygen they already have in their lungs and their body is actually enough for the first few minutes if we could just move the blood through the lungs to grab more oxygen, out to the tissues for perfusion, and the chest compressions alone do that. We didn't realize how much was happening when we let go of the chest compression, the upstroke part. It turns out that the whole chest cavity, the whole thoracic cavity is acting as a bellows, and on the upstroke from a chest compression, the decompression part, that negative pressure pulls blood flow in from the extremities, from the upper body, into the thorax so that we can move it forward with the next downstroke. It also pulls some air in if the airway is patent. And people who collapse in cardiac arrest also gasp for the first couple of minutes, what we've always called agonal breathing. It turns out that they get a fair amount of air through. So it turns out our ventilations are not nearly as important as we thought in adults. In kids, most cardiac arrests are still from ventilatory problems, so the ventilations remain real important. But in adults, if we have to, we can skip them. How are these guidelines being implemented across the nation? It took a while to get the courses to follow the science. So really toward the end of 2006 and now, we're seeing all the courses updated in CPR that are being given, whether for the public or for professionals. And the ACLS change is also uh, implemented in the training courses from American Heart. Other providers, like the Red Cross Association, have also updated. Um, So this is being taught in courses across the country, but it helps to get the message out to the physicians because often our physician community is not doing routine CPR classes every couple years. And even in hospitals now, a lot of nurses just do a quick refresher and don't have to do the class every two years. So it's important to be aware of. EMS, Fire Rescue, jumped in with the new guidelines early, and most cities across the country, our paramedics have been doing these new guidelines for well over a year. So it's being well-received by the EMS community? It's very well-received by EMS and by emergency departments and cardiologists, but I think that many of the other parts of the medical community may not be aware. It's impressive for EMS because now they're seeing more saves, and they're seeing their saves come back with better brain function not the dismal outcomes we always used to see with cardiac arrests where somebody ended up in a vegetative state. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Kathleen Schrank, and we're discussing the impact of the changes made by the American Heart Association on CPR. Dr. Schrank, is there any controversy on the effectiveness of these changes? Overall, these are very well received, and I guess if there's any controversy, it would be a question of whether the American Heart Association new guidelines actually went far enough. Some of our research community recommends doing no ventilations during the first few minutes of arrest, just continuous chest compressions. Most of us interpose a few breaths along the way, but we certainly don't give very many ventilations. So you'll see different, the American Heart Association guidelines are in general use, but you will see different practices sometimes that that exceed the guidelines a bit. The general recommendation is 30 compressions to two ventilations from the American Heart Association. Some EMS services are using 50 to 1, and we're not quite sure a few years from now exactly what the perfect ratio is but we know that continuous uninterrupted chest compressions really make a huge difference. What has been the survival outcome for out-of-hospital arrests, and is this expected to change? I've been working and interested in cardiac arrests for so long, and it's been so frustrating to see little change. Now I think we've really got a much better shot at improved survival. 
Somewhere around 7% is the average survival across the country from ventricular fibrillation arrests with an even poorer outcome from other rhythms. But areas like Seattle, where doctors like Dr. Cobb, Dr. Cummings, Dr. Kopass have really pushed with their folks toward community-wide CPR interests, have seen up to 20% survival. And now with some of the new techniques, not just the new CPR, but other things that we're doing, we really, really hope to make a huge impact on the neurologic survival from cardiac arrest. 20% is amazing from what all of those in practice have seen in the past. What else is new from their recommendations? One of the biggest things that we're now implementing and that I really need to push hospitals to do across the country is after the resuscitation, cooling the body, whole body induced hypothermia is now a class two, a highly recommended practice by the American Heart Association. And initial recommendations for that actually came out in 2002, but weren't so widespread or widely known. Cooling the whole body down to about 33 degrees centigrade for the first 24 hours after resuscitation appears to have a huge impact on improved brain recovery. Examples, one of our EMS medical directors in Texas, his 82-year-old mother collapsed in cardiac arrest, more than 30 minutes of V-fib till the rescuers could get a pulse back on her. She did not wake up and she was immediately cooled. She was found to have a big MI and was flown airlifted to an angioplasty center, walked out of the hospital several days later, normal, fully functional and independent. Those are the kinds of things that we're seeing with whole body cooling, and it's not very hard to do. Um, I'd like you to comment on another story. Uh, The Chicago Sun-Times had a story January 18th about a 13-year-old Lincoln Park resident named Elliot Fagman, who learned CPR from his Boy Scout instructor at the age of 11. He was warned that he wasn't certified and that his skills should only be used on a family member, no one ever imagining what was to come. Two years later, at the age of 13, he initiated CPR on his father and continued until the paramedics arrived and took over. I recently met his father at a public function. He was ambulatory. He'd had some memory loss, but he appeared completely functional and he looked great. Would you like to comment on the actions of this 12-year-old boy? I think that's fantastic. This is what chest compressions and CPR can do. Giving it five minutes after a person collapses is too late. We really need the public to be doing this immediately when somebody collapses and they're unconscious. The 911 operators can help. They can talk people through the chest compression part over the phone. And since ventilations aren't that necessary in the first few minutes, there's tremendous potential, and, and that boy saved his father's life and, in particular, gave him a functional life back. What will we be seeing three or five years from now? Could you predict, or can you tell us some of what science has going on? Some fascinating things are in the pipeline, and we'll know more very soon. There is a huge effort now with many cities across the country and Canada to enter into the International Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, with support from the federal government for funding many of these studies to look at cardiac arrests. And we'll be seeing new devices that help do CPR. Um, If anyone might remember the plunger story from a few years ago, Dr. Lurie, who's at University of Minnesota, had a patient brought in whose family member saved them from cardiac arrest by doing CPR with a toilet plunger. And that upstroke part, pulling up with the plunger, turns out to be a very important part of CPR that you can't do by hand. So some devices are being distributed now and coming into use 
that can do a compression decompression and get even more blood flow going back to the heart and to the brain. So you think all of these changes also will probably make it easier for the lay public and physicians and healthcare providers everywhere to be well-versed in successful CPR? I really do. And another very important thing for learning CPR, I know that a lot of the public and a lot of us don't want to go through four-hour CPR classes, but especially aimed at the public is the CPR kit, and it's available through the American Heart Association. It's a kit you can take home, and it has a DVD, it has an inflatable mannequin, and you learn CPR in 20 minutes from the comfort of your own home. I want to thank Dr. Kathleen Schrank, who's been our guest today, and we have been discussing CPR, new changes by the American Heart Association that will affect all of us in the practice and in the community. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.